Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the episode. They're on the cutting edge of a lot of kelp research using some very interesting techniques. The scientists we talk to actually uses artificial intelligence to give us an inside look into what's happening in these kelp forests. I'm super excited to share this conversation with you, and I really hope you enjoy. So sit back, relax. I hope you're ready for the kelp episode. Ashley. My name is Talon. My pronouns are he, him. Hi, Talon. Thanks for being with us today. What are you researching currently? My my one-liner that I tell people is that I am assessing the biodiversity and abundance of fish and other marine taxa uh, on seaweed farms using artificial intelligence. Yeah. So <laughs> can you unpack that for our listeners? Break it down a little bit more? Sure. <laughs> there is there is a lot of interest in people growing seaweed right now for a bunch of reasons in the ocean. Kind of like how you'd grow like a garden on land. Um, but rather than like make a plot in soil, people can strap little baby seaweeds called sporophytes um, to ropes. And you can lower those ropes into the ocean. And then set kind of like like an oven, like let sit for six months, <laughs> um, and then and then afterwards, boom, you have like a meter or two meters of of uh, kelp in this area or type a type of seaweed that you can then harvest, and then you can use that to do a bunch of different things. You can put it into food. You can make like lasagna out of it. Um, you can add it into like spices for your food. Uh, you can also do like these things called like bio supplements. Uh, put it into things like cattle feed or into the soil to make plants on land grow better. So there's a lot of people like doing this work right now, especially in the last like couple decades here in BC. Um, but there's a lot of questions because it's still a relatively like very new industry, right? Um, for example, one of the big questions is that, well, people are asking, well, we have all these, you know, kelp forests, right? Like kelp grows from the bottom up all along the coastline of British Columbia provides essential habitat for fish and other things. People are also like, well, we when we grow kelp on these ropes, does that also provide habitat for marine critters, stuff like that? Do fish want to come here, hang out like they do in kelp forests? But the issue is that nobody's really tested that yet, at least in this part of the world, uh, whether that effect happens with seaweed farms. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do. So essentially, one seaweed farming company called Cascadia Seaweed said, we're going to try and answer this question in essentially the biggest possible data set we can. We're going to take essentially a bunch of underwater cameras. We're going to literally put them inside our farms, attach them to these same ropes where seaweed are growing on, um, and have them record video, like five minutes of video every hour for a whole year. And we have like 12 cameras doing this both inside of our farms and then at like areas where there's no farm about like 500 meters away. So you can test, you know, does the presence of the farm increase the amount of like fish we see 
um, in that area compared to areas next to it. And so they have started to do this, but then they're like, wow, that's a lot of video. <laughs> no, no, we, <laughs> nobody can possibly, well, it would take a long, long time for somebody to possibly yeah. go through all those videos and pick out every little critter that you see. Yeah, approximately how much video, like how many gigs, how many, I don't know, terabytes okay. of data mm-hmm. of video do you have? We have. We ha- we started the project um, when it was only like a year data set at around 5,000 hours, um, just over. And now it's been expanded to a year and a half. And so I think that's the, the tally, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's around 7,000. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a lot. And so they're like, well, how are we going to do this? And then somebody was like, well, what if we trained artificial intelligence to help us identify and count all these fish because a computer can do this a lot faster than a person can. So they partnered with a computer engineering lab at the University of Victoria here. But then the next question was like, okay, when they're submitting this application to do this work, and then like, all right, we actually, the computer doesn't inherently know what a fish is. So we need somebody, <laughs> some, <laughs> some soul to teach AI what a fish is. And who is this soul? That would be me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 uh, a couple other um, research assistants that have, that have since joined me in this project. So it's it's been a bit of a wild ride, Ashley. I'm not I'm not going to lie. But of course, you've you've heard about this as we've gone through. Yeah. I mean, you've presented multiple times. I mean, I'm we're friends. So you've told me a couple of times, like about how much work this entails. And obviously, AI. It's new. It's a hot topic. As you said doesn't know what a fish is. So when you're going into this program, how do you tell the AI, this is a fish, this is not a fish? And then how do you get the program to do that over and over and over? Two two key elements I think would be would go into has gone into how that works. The first is trying to set for yourself guidelines or or definitions of what is a fish, really? <laughs> it gets very theoretical um, because we, we obviously know when we have like species definitions, like this is a photo of a yellowtail rockfish, right? And we know it's a yellowtail rockfish because it has these key features, fin placements, stuff like that. The, the issue is, especially in, in waters here where we have very turbid water, it's very murky, um, we still want to tell the AI what a, a shadow of a fish is. Even if it's not fully clear, we want to still capture that. So it gets kind of like theoretical and you need to set each like definitions for yourself of what each taxonomical group is. So if it's like just a shadow of a fish, we still want that information. So the second aspect is repetition. <laughs> the first part of my master's was was literally going through these videos, um, which were luckily filtered um, by our computer engineering student, Declan McIntosh, um, who was able to kind of pick out certain images that he then showed to me that were, that were uh, flagged by... AI or a or preliminary filter as being what's called having salient motion, meaning something is moving in these images. We don't know what, but here you go. It could be a fish, could be the seaweed farm going up and down, but it's going to show that to you. So that was essentially flipping through those images and repeating and drawing these things called bounding boxes. So essentially a square around each time something in the image shows up as being an animal. And then we repeat. We we let sit for for eight months. <laughs> Even though you know you have all this this video, all this data, it's still like you can't just use it. Like having this AI 
you know, it seems like it would take you less time, I think. People are like, oh, AI, you know, just put it in, yeah. input it, you'll get a result. <laughs> and you're showing us, no, <laughs> there's all this stuff happening, like in the background, there's all this like extra work that goes into it that I think people might be like, oh, AI is going to like be the future. It's going to fix us and fix us. Fix, <laughs> fix us. humanity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to like solve all these problems for us almost instantaneously. But there's so much, so much more that goes into it. And you are going to bring us the future talent. <laughs> oh, 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 is that where that, que that question was going? I didn't realize yep. that. The That's thing where return. it's um, Well, it's, it's my honor. I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, it's exactly what you said. I think that, you know, we, we see chat GPT or whatever now coming out and we see that like, wow, yeah, AI, smart as anything, can do whatever. But what we don't see is that chat GPT was trained on essentially the breadth of the internet length of data or worth of data, right? Whereas that what we're doing this project essentially to scale, we're having to provide the internet data. <laughs> That's all that our model is being trained on. So because of that, we are having to provide sufficient information to tell when a herring pops up, what's that herring look like at every single angle? Um, and so to do that as one person, I don't think I truly appreciated going into this, but it is a lot. The, it, but that's why this project is happening over such a big time scale, because we need um, a sufficient amount of images for each type of animal that we want to eventually train the AI on, because we don't have the, the Internet's worth yeah. of data, right? <laughs> and you want to be sure. It's not like once this is done, you don't want it to be like, this is a turtle. Oh, wait, no, this is a fish. So you don't want to have those discrepancies in there. And the more that you train it, the fewer those discrepancies will be. Exactly. We want to make sure that we're confident. So we've set a threshold of like, we need to have the AI, we essentially can test, essentially comparing the AI to a human, um, annotating these same images and seeing, okay, how accurate is it? It's over 90%, 95%. Um, and then eventually for only for the things that we're very confident that it's really good at, will we then eventually use it to create a data set that will tell us the biodiversity abundance of these species over the length of the project. Yeah, and then that's the result that you'll provide to your partner. And then hopefully they'll be able to scale that up. Another mm -hmm. question for you. I don't know, at a different angle for AI. What do you think the ethical implications of this will be going forward in the future, whether it's used for biology or just in general? I think that it speaks to well what you said earlier, of like AI is going to, you know, I said it sarcastically, fix humanity. Um, I think that AI, and I think people who are, are in this field will will agree, AI perpetuates humanity, right? Which I think is the is the key of all of this. It only is as good as the data set that you're giving it and the biases that go along with that. So whether it's me, for example, um, when I'm not necessarily as good at IDing jellyfish or whatnot, or people, you know, potentially there's implications about what information are you basing this model off of um, on the internet when we're talking about um, human-related AI, right? Where it's talking about like social implications. Um, so I think really it's only as good as what you're giving it. It will do exactly what it's told, um, but I think that a lot of the times we're not necessarily aware of the biases that are inherent within us <laughs> until is produced by the AI that essentially we're teaching it. It's like a, like, like a child, essentially. <laughs> like that's, that's what it felt like for the, honestly, the first like six months of this, this project, like I was, I was feeding this AI 
a bunch of different images of fish and whatnot. And then eventually we got to the stage where it could feed things back to me. But it was like 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 a child where like it can speak, but it can't really it's not Shakespeare. <laughs> so so it would eventually start handing me things that I would see on the screen being like Father, is this is this fish? And I'd be like, no, that's not fish. We, I mean, then we move on. So, so that, I guess that's the point. Is like it, we we can teach it. It can be good, but or it can be bad. But it will be human based knowledge still. True words of wisdom. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, I think a lot of times because it's artificial intelligence, you know, quote unquote artificial. We forget the human aspect of it. We're like, yes, we're providing it with this data set that's completely unbiased. And, you know, we've, you know, looked at it and done whatever with it. And like, you know, the Internet, sure, the Internet's totally unbiased, completely. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But once you remember that there is the human element, there's the human bias toward it, toward data in general, humans just have inherent biases. That's what we need to remember moving forward. Because that's honestly, as we're using it as a tool, rather hopefully than letting it control us or control all of our decisions, we'll keep that in mind moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we just need to take in the same kind of, as a scientist, the -hmm. same kind of randomized testing to try and correct for as many biases as we can with AI, the same way we would with other studies, right? Um, Just accounting for that and treating it as though it is a person doing this work. Because it's, it's trained by people. It perpetuates people. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing the future to us, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I hope that's not what sticks from this conversation. I'm like, yeah, Talon, he's bringing the future. He's doing, he's doing it. Um, but no, you are, you're very welcome. And, and again, I need to, I just need to stay right now that this is part of a much larger project that involves many, many people. Um, who have like set this up, done the field work. Um, a gentleman by the name of Colin Bates with Cascadia started this whole this whole project with Cascadia support. Um, and then there's like multiple labs involved in this. So I am I am but a a small piece in a very large <laughs> AI <laughs> pool, if you will. Yeah, but your small piece is what's driving a lot of this forward. So if you will mm-hmm. link Cascadia in the show notes, and people can check out the other projects that they're doing as well. Totally. So kelp-wise, have you found anything so far looking through the videos that's been interesting in terms of like biodiversity or what that might mean for like kelp farms in the future? So far, I have to say, like disclaimer, our results are all preliminary right now. But in terms of like cool things that have popped up, I think it's it's safe for me to say that we've seen we've seen a lot. That's that's quite surprising. For one thing, we've seen a lot of Pacific herring, which are very crucial on on our coastline. We know they're very important as a traditional food. We know they're very important in marine ecosystems, um, to salmon in particular, uh, important part of the food web. So we've seen a a lot of herring. Also seen some other uh, forage fish like uh, northern anchovy um, that have popped up as well. Um, We have seen the occasional rare um, more rare individual that's popped up, um, including like we see the occasional like sea lion. There was one, there's one time and I say this and, and I don't know, it's not relevant for the project, but I love it anyway. So I mentioned it. Our cameras sometimes like turn around and face up um, in the water because they kind of flow with the water. And so one time it turned up and I was able to identify a seagull 
<laughs> that was flying above the camera. And so that <laughs> that to me like made my <laughs> made my days. So when people ask me like what cool things you see, I have to mention the seagull. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, it's it's that's one of the great advantages of a project of this scale though, is we get to see what the coastal ecosystems look like underwater for a full year every day, which is unreal to me. So you get to see, you know, when shiner perch come into like mating season or whatnot and like other fish um, come and go from this area, we get to capture all that outside of just the fact that it's a seaweed farm or not a seaweed farm. We get to see more like spatial and temporal patterns as we call it in scientific lingo, right? So very interesting stuff to me. Yeah, and that's so cool. I mean, honestly, you know, we just see the surface a lot of the times, but the kelp ecosystem is so unique it provides so many ecosystem services and hosts so much biodiversity. And seeing that in real time with all your footage must be incredible. It absolutely is. It's uh, it's really interesting to see just how much one little area, where as far as the camera sees, can change over the course of a year. So I, I really will say, like, watch this space because the, the data set that's eventually going to come out of this will hopefully not only be important for seaweed farms, but also just to know, What's going on under the water every day for a year and a half, you know, right in the coastline, right? Because these, these are places, these aren't somewhere way out in the ocean. These are right near the shoreline. We have a, um, a site in, in Barkley Sound up on the, the west coast of Vancouver Island and then a bit further up in uh, what's called Clayquat Sound near Tofino. Yeah. And these places we can definitely link to a map or something, but they are important co coastal ecosystems. We can see like interactions, behaviors happening that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And as you said, they are very important sources of food for many locals. Absolutely. I want to know if you've how much kelp you've eaten in your lifetime. I actually am sad to say that I haven't eaten much kelp before um, other than like sushi. However, I will say this. I attended uh, what's called the fall program at, at the Banfield Marine Sciences Center. Banfield's a very small town on the west coast of the island. And this Marine Sciences Center hosts a lot of really cool like ocean expeditions and research. And you can take classes there if you're a part of member universities. Mm -hmm. And so I took a class there and we took a seaweeds course um, hosted by Patrick Martone out of UBC. And at the end of the seaweeds course, the final assignment was a seaweed cook-off. And so I got to partner up. I was there with my best friend, um, Rylan, at the time. And we ended up um, trying out for it and winning this competition um, of, like, trying to make the best dish you can out of seaweed. We were given, like, cut some instructions. But essentially, you need to go literally collect seaweed off the shoreline because you can. You can actually eat um, almost all, I believe, if not all, seaweeds. And we try and make a crafted dish. But the two of us, <laughs> we were, we were, like, <laughs> young kids who didn't really know how to cook properly, let alone with slimy kelp, um, <laughs> which you got to like dry it out and do stuff with it. It does taste great. But what we ended up deciding on was this, we use this plant or this uh, kelp called Macrocystis pyrifera, which is a type of uh, called giant kelp. Um, and we cut the blades up and we're like, hmm, maybe, maybe we just experiment it. What if we just put like chocolate sauce in it and like popcorn kernels and make it a little like pods. And we ended up like burning the caramel, um, went through two bags of popcorn somehow. <laughs> um, we finally made this little product of like shaping these kelp blades into little pods. So we called them macropods. And that's what people, we ended up advertising it as like, you know, you can make this while camping off the shoreline. And they liked it and it tasted good. So we, we won and we got a, we got a seaweed cookbook. 
Wow. So we're sitting here. I'm sitting here with the winner of the kelp cook-off competition. <laughs> the Banfield 2017 <laughs> yes. kelp cook-off competition. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I don't know if I've, be, I've ever said that title, but I'm glad that yeah. it's been recognized. Yeah. Regardless, it sounds – I don't want to say it sounds good because it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're honest. It sounds interesting and I would try it at least once. Yeah, I mean, picture it. I picture it like kind of like the tofu of like the the plant world in that you can kind of shape it and craft it and it can absorb the flavors around it. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, another question for you. Mm-hmm. What made you want to do this? I'm assuming you didn't think that you would become the kelp cook-off champion or <laughs> be someone who's training this AI to identify biodiversity all these species, all these fish in a kelp or seaweed farm. Mm. So can you take us on a little bit of a journey? <laughs> sure. A, a journey. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, so I, I grew up here on the Quangan territory in, in Victoria. Um, and I always joke that like, I don't think I had much of a, a real choice. There's never much deliberation about whether or not I'd go into like marine science in some way, because I grew up with um, a couple of parents who loved the ocean, a very Australian father who would like take us down fishing on the coastline or like exploring tide pools and whatnot. So when it came time to like go into an undergrad degree, I was like, absolutely, marine bio, that's great. What I didn't expect out of all of that was like what I would end up studying, which has essentially been a variety of things. I, I don't have a study animal. I've studied everything uh, in my very short life from like sand to like gooey duck clams which are these massive super like old aged clams that like burrow in the water and like nobody knows why they, they live super super long a fairy wakes up studies another thing what links it all together what i really gets me going gets the old the old talons blood flowing <laughs> um is is i i really um enjoy doing research that i think matters to people um and if I can get the picture of why what I'm doing might be useful, it doesn't – I can get excited about a lot of stuff. So what I remember when I got the message about this, this project, um, I was working at a, a nonprofit in northeast Queensland, Australia, in the Great Barrier Reef region. I was doing um, water quality and other kinds of um, monitoring and environmental work there. And I got a text. I was in like a mall at like 9 a.m., like sweating my butt off. And I was, I, I love my, my time there, but I was like, I never really adapted to the heat. And I got a text from, from my mentor and, and friend here um, being like, are you still looking for masters? Um, because she knew, <laughs> she knew I was like looking, I was always wanting to go back to grad school. And so I was like, yes, we'll, we'll talk about it. And the more I learned about this project, um, the kind of applications it has, this is before like, <laughs> I don't want to say before AI was cool, but this is like before I really understood how big artificial intelligence is going to be in, in the research space, I suppose, or appreciated it. But I knew that this kind of question was really important um, to seaweed farming as it's taking off because it is you know, taking off not only in, in British Columbia, but, but other parts of the world right now. And, and I was like, yes, sign me up, um, even though I have very little to no knowledge of of seaweed farming at the time or or what I would exactly be having to do over the course of the project. 
and I I do not regret it at all. It's been it's been a very interesting saga. Do you feel like that? Like your like your research is like a saga you can't necessarily predict. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of us feel that way. Where we at least those of us who don't come in with a very clear idea of what your project is going to be, mm-hmm. I think it takes different shapes the further you go along. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But but like the the key part is like. Do you, do you like those shapes? Like, what kind of? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I think I like the different shapes, quote unquote shapes that the research takes more than others. Like, sometimes I enjoy the different tasks that are associated with each stage of research. But regardless, there's still the end goal of yes, my research is eventually going to help people, and that sounds like that's kind of what you've found as well. I mean. With the AI, I know it's been it's been a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> at the end, you know that your research is going to end up helping people. Yeah, I think that's that's part of this is like with my research, the good part about it, even though it's sometimes a lot of a big learning curve having to adapt to a new study area each time or whatnot, potentially. I love the idea. I've never had to question whether or not my research might be useful in, in, in really any project that I've done here. And that's kind of, I guess, one of my passions is like, to be able to do that, I think, is really cool. There's also a, a childlike joy, I think, that comes from this kind of unique thrill from doing something at least seemingly novel to you in the world, you know? I think that, I don't know about you, but in this world where, like, every trip we go on has already, like, been posted on, like, Instagram by somebody else or, like, um, every trek you could like, look for online or something like that that you do, like, when do we get to do things that are truly like novel, you know, and and I think that to be able to have that and repeat that with lots of cool different people and experts throughout different stages of your working career, that's that's a privilege. Yeah, honestly, I, lo- I love that perspective because I think we do get caught up in the repetition. It's like this has already been done. Maybe it's just from a slightly different angle. But I think true novelty in today's world is very rare. And it is a really big privilege that as researchers, we do get to explore these spaces that are are novel. We do get to try out these techniques and everything that are novel while still working toward, you know, a better future for, for everyone. Absolutely. If you continuously say, do you think seaweed farms will be sustainable in the future, a sustainable food source? I guess in terms of a sustainable food source, I... I can't say the future of seaweed farming because honestly, like my little pocket of seaweed farms comes down to like, do they provide habitat for some living things? Like I'm not sure about the market um, or anything like that or, or, the, or the growth of them. I'd be surprised if they, if at the end of this project, we found that there wasn't a difference in some ways because, you know, when we put things into the water, things use that as habitat. You know, something does a lot of the time, um, either if it's fish aggregating or or inverts clinging to things in the water. You know, it, it's still used. Yeah, I don't think I can speak to the rest of the industry overall, but I'm excited to see where it goes because it seems like there's a lot of people um, researching, um, I guess, different facets of seaweed farming right now. And that's kind of the really cool thing that I've seen as being part of the industry the companies here at least seem very focused on getting to the bottom of what exact effects, both good and bad, that these um, seaweed farms may be having on the ecosystem. And there's a lot of eyes definitely on those people doing that work. I think that there are there's a lot of 
investment going into the expansion of this industry right now. But with that investment comes the implication or expectation, um, which I think companies are trying to fulfill, that we test exactly what affects these spaces, seaweed farms, are having on our coastal ecosystems. So I think that in the next, you know, five, ten years, we're going to see and have a lot of these questions that you and I are talking about right now of like, oh, I wonder what's going to ha- what what they do. I think those are going to come to light, at least with some evidence, in our coastline in BC very soon. I, I would also agree with that. I mean, more and more you're seeing projects like yours coming into the spotlight being like, hey, can we make this work for the future? And, you know, it goes back to the whole idea of blue carbon. It's like, hey, is this going to be helpful with you know, the challenges of climate change that we're facing with food scarcity and increasing carbon in the atmosphere. Is this going to be a sustainable way to maybe tackle some of these problems? We'll see. Mm, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Talon, thank you so much for your wisdom. Much appreciated. And we'll definitely keep an eye on this space for sure in the future. It's my pleasure. Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.